right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here at the Black Garden Law Podcast. I am here with my law partner, Candace Owens. Hello. And my friend and client, Jeff Irwin. Thank you so very much for having me. Oh, actually, we're, thank you for having me, because we're here in Jeff's conference room drinking Jeff's coffee, So, um, which is apropos because it's the right kind of beverage for this, uh, for this subject, which is legal solutions to that you don't know you might have to problems that we're all facing today very sober very and, sober and somber yeah well and perhaps we'll move into different beverages as the as the <laughs> uh, as the conversation progresses right. but um but this came about because we we were obviously um just a couple of days ago things were going on more or less as usual and suddenly we're all um, stuck at home with our um work from home clauses and crowded families and teenagers and everything else so um and a lot of a lot of businesses, particularly here in New Mexico, are under mandatory closure, which you know creates some some problems. So, uh, Candace and I were chatting the other day, and we we're like, "Hey, you know, there's three things that you know, top three things that businesses might think about in terms of ways to uh, come at this, at least from a legal perspective, is you know, do they have force majeure in their contracts? Do they have insurance that would help them in this kind of situation?" And do they have some leverage in terms of renegotiating some of their commitments? Which is scintillating. Like, it was super exciting. So we decided to write some content on it, and Jeff read at least some of it. I read it. Yeah. So I didn't understand it all, but I read it. Well, this is what lawyers are for. Um, um, some people make coffee or beer, and some people make sense out of words. Right? Write contracts. Right, write contracts. So... Um, <laughs> So let's let's talk about um, let's talk about force majeure. So, Candace, um, what is force majeure? What does it mean? What's the translation? It means superior force, right? In probably French or Latin, we should know that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what, what's a force majeure clause for? Performance. Perform- under contract. Right, and specifically, it's a it's excuse. usually an excuse, right? For non-performance. Right. So, so what that means is that if you have a force majeure clause, it says that a party or maybe both parties or all parties can be excused for some or all of their performances if something really crazy happens. And often they're, they're sometimes called act of God or they're, or, you know, in the clause they're defined as act of, acts of God, but they usually recite a list of things, including without limit, Riots, strikes, fires, earthquakes, war. war, yeah, things that would disrupt a business. Um, and then those things, you know, can excuse the parties from performance and, ob- and their obligations under the contract. Right. Right. For some period of time, usually. For some period of time, and for and not necessarily for for everything, right? right. But um, so that so in that. You know, first of all, Jeff, how often do you read the force majeure clause in your contracts? Um, or do you even have I, I have an attorney that I pay to read those. <laughs> if right. they're there. Right. If right. they're there. For big, so but not all contracts have them. Not all contracts have them. And and so let's talk about this practically. So a force majeure clause, if it's there, depending upon how it's worded, could excuse you from paying rent, right? In the in the case of a act of God. And that would be pretty handy these days, like to not have to pay your rent for a yeah. while. Brewers, yeah. 
Yeah, brewers more often than not see force majeure clauses um, in their um, in their contracts that they sign for, on futures for both hops and malt. Mm -hmm. And basically, they they're in those term in those senses, they're always in those contracts. They're always an excuse for non-performance of the delivery of those ingredients uh, through the act of God. Yeah. And so, what is an act of God? An act of God is anything that is uncontrollable by uh, by human beings. You should be a lawyer. It's like that's actually what most of them say. That's that's a that's a really good um, analysis of what an act of God is, and it's usually the words that are that are or something like to that effect that are in the explanation of what of what constitutes an act of God. So, but that's interesting. You put, you bring it up. If you're brewing beer and you have a commitment to, to um, brew beer or to buy hops or to do one thing or another, that's an ingredient. And if the supply chain is disrupted by an act of God, be it you know, an earthquake or, or a flood or some kind of infestation, some kind of, some kind of bug, then that could apply to um, food, if you're producing food, if you're producing some sort of food product, um, corn chips, or some, you, there's some ingredient that is um, hard to come by. Um, sesame seeds, famously in season one of Silicon Valley, you know, there's, there are things like that. But it's a great, it's a great example. I think it's, it's good to understand what these things are for. So, um, so first of all, back to where I was talking about, if you ever read them, a lot of people don't read them, and a lot of people say things like you know, Candace Knight kind of twitch when people say, oh, we just want like a boilerplate agreement, and, and. What they mean by that is they've got some economic terms that they know about. They said how much we're going to get paid or how much we're going to pay and how long and things like that. And everything else is boilerplate. And it's funny because it's really not boilerplate. And even yesterday someone was talking to us about, oh, you've got a boilerplate you know, form for this. It's like, well, we have a base form. But what we customize in that form is really, really important. So one of the things that I thought would be interesting is I'm just going to go look at some um, – force majeure clauses from actual contracts, from actual leases, commercial leases involving big companies. These leases are not like, you know, little tiny things and see what they say. So I've got two examples here um, and I'm going to read them aloud because it's so interesting and then we can talk about them. So the first one says, the parties hereto are relieved of any liability if unable to meet the terms and conditions of this agreement due to any act of God, comma, riots, epidemics, strikes, or any other act or order which is beyond the control of the party not in compliance, provided that it takes all reasonable steps, practical and necessary, to effect prompt resumption of its responsibilities hereunder. I love that one. I like that. Well, you love that one because it's easy to understand. It, it, you know, it, 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 Painfully obvious exactly what the intention of it right, is. Right, right. And there is very little wiggle room um, for subjective interpretation of of that. It, it, you know, there's only there was only one thing, all reasonable right. efforts, which that is what would be where the lawsuit would happen. Well, if we if we knew that this was going to happen, like if we felt like this was. And, and I'm guessing that's I'm from today. I'm it didn't say all parties act in good faith. Well, there's an implied, there's, there's a implied duty of good faith in any, in any contract. And that also is hard to litigate. So reasonable is almost, so, so reasonable, you might say, you put reasonable in there. So you can't say, oh my God, well, they should have 
um, sold all their earthly possessions, burned their fields to the ground, like um, um, put their children to work in the factory. Like you know, there, there's some there's some limit to the things that they that they have to do. So we often, when people say absolute discretion, we're saying no reasonable discretion. Like well, depending on who we're representing. So there's there's um, that that's actually not a not a bad um, place to be. But if we felt like this was pretty likely to happen, we might add some more stuff to this. Like, well, how long does the obligation exist? Does it, is it, is it not time bounded? Like, does it go on forever? Like what, what, what are the, what are the, the deals for this? Force majeure is a thing that usually belongs in contracts because they're like, oh my God, in the very unlikely case that something really terrible, really, really terrible would happen, you got an excuse for it. You mean like the government shutting your business down? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. However, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that we're all going to be drafting a lot more force yeah, majeure absolutely. clauses, and a lot of people are going to ask us a lot more about them for at least a while, and they're going to be in those contracts for decades, because a lot of the contracts that we use, and a lot of the contracts that are still enforced today, might have been signed in the 70s in some cases. So, all right, so let's read the second clause and see which one we like better. Whenever there is provided in this lease a time limitation for performance by landlord of any obligation, including, but not limited to, obligations related to construction, repair, maintenance, or service, the time provided for shall be extended for as long as and to the extent that delay in compliance with such limitation is due to an act of God, governmental control, or other factor beyond the reasonable control of landlord. Gee, I wonder who wrote that lease. Yeah. Which, which attorney was it? Lessor or lessee? I can't tell. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, it's super confusing to remember who lessor or lessee is, uh, unless you do it a lot. But... Yeah, so so which clause is better depends which party you are, right? So if the but that I mean that is what I would expect to see a landlord who controls a you know say a, a one to two maybe three million square feet of retail space um, handing to a uh, you know potential uh, right lessee that uh, is in a much lower financial position than, than, the, than the landlord or is. or if. Uh, imagine you've got that same landlord with with tons and t- millions and millions of square feet. This week, right. tenants can go. Oh no, no, no. We're changing that clause. Landlord will say, "Absolutely. How would you like to change it, sir?" Right? Because the negotiating power will have shifted. But I think. And in the first one, obviously, it's a works for both parties. Right. The first one is a bilateral agreement. It's basically saying, "Hey, either one of us," and that is sort of like we all feel really, really good about that. But you got to remember that the the rarely do people hire an attorney and say, "I want to be a really good person about this." They basically say, "I'm paying you to help me protect my interests." And so we get questions a lot by saying, "Is this standard?" It's like sometimes we can kind of say what is what is standard, what is not. But in a lot of cases, it's what's negotiated. And I think the the biggest point that we could make here is at this point. You're going to read the contract because it might, may or may not, it may give you the opportunity to save your business. A, B, it ain't boilerplate. So if somebody says, "Is there?" So if there's a landlord in here, they might put it in this way and see if someone catches it. See if somebody you know you know reads it, which is kind of a good signal, kind of like the uh, yeah. kind of like the. I mean, how, many, how many how many up and coming entrepreneurs just say yes, I want the spot and sign it and don't. I mean, don't even have an attorney look at it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them. 
Yeah, and we usually find out about it a little exactly. bit later, like right. when they when they right. then have a problem. Well, because the they didn't want to pay you a thousand dollars to begin with to mm -hmm. to, uh, to look it over. I mean, if I see this clause, but not it would maybe may not have even been a thousand dollars. Maybe it right. wasn't, but it would have been worth a thousand dollars now. You were ten thousand uh, dollars now. Right, yeah, exactly. yeah, right. Because you're going to spend fifty thousand dollars trying to litigate it. I mean, right. if I see a clause that's so one way like that, we say either take it out or make it bilateral. Right. Yeah, and then and then we see what, you know what what the parties say. The other party says no, and and then the the other the counterparty decides if, mm -hmm. if they're going to live with it or not. Right. And you know they risk assessment. Right, risk assessment. Exactly. Exactly. So I think this is um, a really important um, point to understand how contracts actually do get drafted and what these boilerplate clauses, um, I'm air quoting boilerplates, um, how different they can really be and how they can really make a, a difference in in whether or not you're able to enforce your rights. So in terms of COVID-19, shutdown, reduction of business, and so forth. Um, go look at your contract and see if it's got a force majeure clause and see if you can understand it. And if you can't, find someone who can help you understand it because it, it might make a real difference. I think I, the only thing I think you're, you're ignoring in this is just the financial positions of both parties and whether or not, um, you know, th this, this is unprecedented what ha what's happening today. And people um, who were sitting on millions of dollars in, you know, liquid capital today, uh, you know, or a week ago, could be sitting on half of that today, or, or could be sitting on, you know, by the end of it, could be really in very dire positions. So whether you're the landlord or you're the, you know, the lessee, to me, um, it is behoove us to all remember when we do go to. Um, either collect rent or pay rent or ask the landlord for extra time to remember that um, that landlord has potentially hundreds of businesses renting properties from them that could be in exactly the same boat as you. And just because that landlord, you think of them as being this person worth $50, $100 million or something like that, doesn't mean that that will be the case six months from now. That is an excellent point, and that was actually the third of the three things to talk about, which is the, so you may or may not have a provision in your lease or your, your material contract. Well, whether you do or don't, right? only matters so much. It only matters so much. It is totally smart to call your landlord, or in this case, as an example, and say, hey, listen, this is what's going on. They know that. So I like to think of it as I have customers and if my customers are losing money, losing things, they're not going to have as much money to pay me. And then I in turn am not going to have as much money to pay the people who are down my vendors, my, you know, the, the, the people that I buy things from. So the landlords know this. And so, you know, hundred years ago, I was in the sporting good business with my family and we had, we did a lot of ski business, which, and, and just so you know, you buy ski goods out now to be delivered in the summer, to be sold in the fall. And the first big due date for all that stuff is December 10th. The, the big bills for the preseason orders are due December 10th. If it ain't snowing, if it hasn't snowed any place, if it's warm, 
we would call the vendors and say, hey, listen, it's 60 degrees in Santa Fe right now. Um, there's no snow in the mountain. Um, we weren't open for, for Thanksgiving. And if you call them on December 9th, not so cool. But if you call them on December 1st or right after Thanksgiving or, you know, they understand. They, they're they going to ask for something, but but they don't, you know what they don't want? They don't want a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of goods being shipped back to them. And they don't want massive failures around around the country. And just like your landlord example, Jeff, the landlords know, like you said at the other you said a moment ago, if you owe a million dollars, it's your problem. If you own $10 million, if you owe $10 million, it's their problem. In 2009 and 10, a lot of banks weren't foreclosing on properties. Or, you know, a better example is a lot of commercial leases or commercial um, uh, uh, lending arrangements had the ability to call the loans or the ability to refinance the loans at, you know, 10 years into a 20-year amortization. And most of them didn't do it. Because the moment they did it, the debt on the balance sheet went from good debt to bad debt. So they were actually able to say, oh, our bad, by, by kicking the ball down the road six months at a time, they were trying to give their their borrowers time to, to recover. And also it made their position look better too. I guarantee if your business is closed by the, by the government and you talk to your landlord, I can't guarantee the landlord's not going to be a jerk about it. But they've got the same problem you do, effectively. They hopefully they'll, they'll realize that, and they might be renegotiating their contracts and relying on their force majeure clauses with right. their banks and their lenders. Right. One one piece of practical advice I think that Candace and I would say is, if you have that conversation with your landlord or your other material contract holder, don't call them and tell them, don't call and say, hey, I'm not going to pay you this month. Um, don't call them and tell them, or do something that in and of itself constitutes a default. Call them and say, hey, this situation is unprecedented. Can we talk about how we could negotiate this? Because, again, if the conversation is going productive, it's not gonna, it probably won't matter. But you don't want to, you are not in default at this point. You don't want to have an anticipatory breach. Yes. Law school. Yeah. Nice. Were you Gunner? You were, weren't you? You sat in the front row. So glad I was not in law school with you. Yeah, I would have. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now I just put up with you. You put up with I, me. I would say, um, and, and maybe we want to save this for the for, for that you know further down the line discussion. But I would say to those that um, are in the enviable position of having really done a good job of preparing for such moments, there is a real opportunity from a negotiating standpoint moving forward, and that's that you could be that one customer of your supplier, that one lessee, that one that for your landlord, that one client for your attorneys, that through all of this is the only one that's continuing to pay their bills and pay them on time. And what does that do for you later on when you are trying to negotiate your future lease or your future contracts with that supplier when they know that you're that one customer client lessee that through the very hardest times in their business continue to pay. And I'm not saying that everybody's going to be in that position, 
or that um, you should prioritize paying your landlord or your attorneys or your suppliers above, say, paying your staff. But um, no, but it, but there is a real but, but, it, but if you but if you do, there but, are real opportunities for um, mm -hmm. for, for well-prepared companies. Well, if everybody had all their relationships the way on a first-name basis, you wouldn't have Experian, and you wouldn't necessarily even have contracts because you'd be able to say, "Yeah, Jeff's a trustworthy guy," and yeah. You know, Jeff has paid. Has been able to stay current through these tough times. I didn't say that's going to happen. I'm just using it as a, <laughs> I'm just saying it as an example, right? I'm not even saying it's a good example. I'm just saying I'm just throwing it out there for for uh, right. But the but the point is that's kind of why we have these things so we can scale. So a bank can have hundreds of clients, hundreds of of, of borrowers, and the same thing is true of of, of your business too. You have um, you have draft accounts, and. You, I know, because we've spoken about some draft accounts that have fallen um, behind on yeah. on some of their payments. And so, you know, what does it do for you when you know these draft accounts? So let's say right now they're shut down. You know they're shut down. They know you know you're shut down. But one or two of them will probably call you up and say, hey, man, um, I know your tap room shut down. You know our place is shut down. You know, you know um, what are you expecting in terms of payment, right? What would that do for you? Well, you know, we're all emotional beings, so um, I certainly appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have plenty of, um, you know, moving forward, I'm gonna have plenty of customers, uh, draft, wholesale draft customers that are simply not gonna contact me and hope that I don't even realize that they owe don't me contact them. thousands right. of dollars. Right. I'm going to have ones that call us up and and explain that they have no income right now, so they're not going to be able they're to... They're going to be the ones that... They're not going to pay out. me. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to be ones that, without me saying a word to them, write me a check on time for the amount that they owe. Right. And that will certainly be remembered. The I like to say that the best lessons I ever learned in business, I learned from my grandfathers and my, and my dad. And so, you know, you say, pay your bills on time. And if, if you're having a problem, communicate, be direct. Beforehand. And what happens is when the, when the vendor in, in this case has something special, who do they call first? Yeah, as a businessman, you build your brand in the same manner, businessman or woman, I apologize, but you build your brand in the same way you do as a, as a company, with the a million and one impressions that you leave. Tiny gestures. Tiny gestures. Where'd right. you get that from? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true, you know, if, if you're that, uh, that, that business person that continuously over the course of your career um, are late with payments or don't pay and have declared bankruptcy a few times and never call your vendors or suppliers, you know, that is who you are and you're not going to be able to get past that. Mm -hmm. But if you're that, if you're also, you know, on, on the other hand, if you're that business person that for, you know, everybody knows that uh, when they give you net 30, you pay in net 15 and um, never been late with a single payment and 
never called to try to renegotiate something. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that that's your brand too. Yeah, for for sure, for sure. All right. Well, the one the one other thing that we were going to talk about today is business interruption insurance, um, which, again, many of you, maybe all three of us in this room, have not read their insurance policies closely enough to know if they have business interruption insurance. Odds are, if you know that you have it, it's because you bought a rider, you bought something special for it. But generally, business interruption insurance, there's it's often included as part of a general insurance policy, but it's pretty limited. And it's even more limited today than it was 20 years ago because, um, again, since some of these acts of God that we never thought would happen have happened, and in particular right now, SARS, right? So SARS... Um, caused a lot of insurance companies to pay out in a way they never anticipated paying out. And so usually business interruption insurance requires some physical damage to your property. So like literally if someone backs their pickup truck into your tap room or restaurant and shuts down the, the, the front space for a couple days, they'll pay you for that. But if a global pandemic causes forced shutdowns, no payment, no, you know, if, if a leaky um, HVAC unit could generate potentially um, a payment, it depends on the policy, right? Mm-hmm. It's not boilerplate either, but it's worth checking to see if you have business interruption insurance and it's if worth, it, if it's applicable in these situations. Right. Yeah. It's probably worth thinking about if you need it for next time around. Separately, right. not even for a pandemic necessarily. Right. Yeah. A pa- the pandemic in rider you can get as well, but that's right. also... And I'll, I'll bet you can get a, a rider for ingredients, for inputs, you know. Um, oh, yeah, they'll sell you insurance for just about anything. Right. But I would further argue, you know, as an extension of that uh, negotiating tract, is that, you know, if... if wait till you need it. Because... Um, you know, we could we could get to the end of this thing in in three months, and you could look at it and you could realize that, you know, that was really really painful, but we got through it. We're right. fine financially. We're in a fine place, and we will be fine moving forward. You could also be two months into this and realize that uh, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy, and and in that case, yeah, all things are everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. So to follow up on that on that point. If you realize that you're not going to make it through this, just like calling to renegotiate early, the earlier you take action, the better off you're going to you're going to be. If you've signed personal guarantees, for example, and you don't think you can renegotiate those things, you've got to make a plan right. um, early right. to protect your own right. your own assets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, no, and and. Um, I completely agree with you on the contacting people early. Get it, you know, get on the phone, get on the horn as quickly as possible. Be as nice as you possibly can be to everyone you talk to, um, because you are going to be making an ask of them that is not necessarily in their financial interest. Right. And in this situation, though, in these broad situations, that's true all the time. But in these broader situations that are affecting, you know, pretty much everyone, then. You know they're going to be potentially making an ass too up right. on the up chain. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and you know, to that end, they they also are 
hopefully realize because you've done a really good job of building your own personal brand that you wouldn't be coming to them if you didn't need to. Right. And that if they're unreasonable and everyone else that you potentially owe money to is unreasonable, then none of you are getting paid anything. Right. So, um, it's often, it is about relationships. It is about relationships. Relationships you've built, the relationship you want to have and the relationships you have. And it's a little bit about the ecosystem too. Like, um, the, to keep using movie references, the scene in, um, it's a wonderful life where the, they come and try to take all the money out of the bank. You realize that no one, if you're a landlord, no one who owes you rent has the money. Like, You've bet on them, on their business, being able to generate the money in the future. So if you go and put them, if, if you go and create a default, or if you go put them in default, you are not going to get the balance. Out. You're going to have an, in this environment, you're going to have an empty building right. with no prospects. Right. You're going to spend a ton of money to fix it up for the next tenant, which is going to happen in two years, and pay 6% of the amount to a couple brokers to, to put that deal together. Yeah, it's funny how many personal guarantees I, I, I signed when I had, you know, $250 in the bank account. Right. And people, you know, and, and, you know, I remember a landlord hearing under his breath saying to somebody about me, oh, I've got a personal guarantee from him. And I turned around and I said, yeah, well, that line starts up in house. <laughs> so go ahead, and, go ahead and get in. I think and, a lot uh, of people just want to get a personal, there are a lot of, um, Lenders and, and landlords and stuff like to have personal guarantees just to feel that you feel like you have some skin. In absolutely, the game. absolutely. Not even that they'd ever collect on understand. it or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it isn't an interesting now that once a company, you know, once a, a company is showing, you know, five million or ten million dollars a year in, in income and, right. and has, you know, good books and stuff, they don't ask for a personal guarantee. Right. Yeah, because right. The, I know, but that, I know. because the, the brand, the brand is established, right? right? They've yeah, got yeah. you've got. Um, and so the other the other thing to think about in terms of like the real estate example is, you know, everybody wants the groovy little coffee shop in their neighborhood. The landlord raises their hand and say, I'm cool to be a little bit poorer by putting that coffee shop in my space. Because even if they pay more rent per square foot, I can't sell the building for as much because they don't have as much credit. So it's like a bond, like their their possibility of going out of business is higher. So they're taking a risk. To, to do this and and they are trying to manage their risk but understand that they are taking that risk and just like an invest just like a, a venture capitalist you know a landlord takes that risk and sit across the table and go do I think this this these people are going to be successful that's what they're that's what they're trying to figure out are, and and if they are not going to be successful are they gonna if I can get out of this hole right cool well this has been Super fun. I hope the audio comes out okay. Yeah, we'll see. If not, we'll do it again. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll um, be continuing this series as we generate more content, um, not just through the pandemic, um, but going forward for a lot of other uh, interesting legal issues, boilerplate, deep, deep clauses. We call it deep clauses. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, rate us and review us if you have a chance.